You're listening to the Gator Sports Podcast with your host, Zach Alboverdi. Coming in hot. And Graham Hall. Jumping. Coming smooth. Jumping. And the bass gets jumping. Brought to you by the Gainesville Sun and Gatorsports.com. Welcome back into the Gator Sports Pod presented by the Gainesville Sun. Zach Albaverde and Graham Hall coming to you live from the Gainesville Sun studios after another home game and a homecoming for Florida and another shutout for the first time since 2019. 42 to nothing over the Commodores. A 300-plus yard performance from Emory Jones. Obviously, the Gators hold Vandy scoreless once again for the second time in two years, but it was an uneasy Shut out might be a good way to describe it. It didn't really, uh, the Gators really didn't start routing this team until the second half and that third quarter explosion, a little bit of uh, frustration from Dan Mullen going into the locker room at halftime. So Graham and I will recap all that and more. But at the end of the day, the Gators got the feel-good win that they needed coming off that loss to Kentucky. They really were given a gift by the Commodores because you get to use the term shutout when, oh man, I feel bad for, for Bulovas their field goal kicker, and they had a chance there on fourth and goal at the two-yard line. They really cost themselves 16 points right there and gave Florida a chance to do what you said, Zach. Say that they shut out Vanderbilt for the second time in two years. So that's huge for the program, I think, because it wasn't too long ago. I know we said this for the Kentucky game that, you know, 2018, Vanderbilt had built an 18-point lead at home. So... So much parity in the SEC, which we're going to talk about here. You really can't take any of these games for granted. Yeah, absolutely. And as we get to this game and start breaking it down and give our takeaways, I do want to quickly recap some of the other games that happened around the SEC because it was just an incredible weekend for league play. I think obviously we're going to get into the, the Bama game and the implications of that. But even LSU, Kentucky, seeing that the Wildcats were for real and that they were able to kind of follow up that that win over Florida with another big win over a premier program in this conference. And then, I mean, the shootout that we saw from Ole Miss in Arkansas, the Rebels pull that out. I think Matt Corral really solidifies himself as the Heisman candidate with the way that he played. But But really, I think all of college football was tuned into that Bama upset and Jimbo Fisher becomes the first former Nick Saban assistant to beat the GOAT. And I think it's no surprise that of all those former assistants, it's a coach who was a national championship winning head coach as the one to knock him off. So we know that it's never going to be Kirby Smart, right, Graham? Yeah, I know Florida fans would kind of cringe if he was the first one because so many have tried and failed to knock off the GOAT. Let's let's call him that. No, he is. You know, it's been so funny. I've seen so many good takes out there being like, you know, Nick Saban's maybe not that good of a coach because he never prepares his opponents. It's become so funny because I've seen so many takes out there that have kind of turned it on Nick Saban saying that he's not a great coach because he hasn't prepared his assistants to go out there and become head coaches who can now beat him in the SEC. I think that's just hilarious. So good for Jimbo Fisher for being the first one to do it because, you know, that Texas A&M program they've been building, Florida saw that last year when they had to go into College Station. So, you know, kudos to them. But to be fair, nobody saw that coming. You're looking at a two-loss Aggies team that had lost to Mississippi State the week before. It's just – that just kind of shows you this league and how 
in any given week if you're one of the more competitive teams in the conference that that you can win and it just speaks to kind of how this division race I, I guess now in the West and, and certainly even in the East is, is far from being decided, as we saw with LSU's play uh, against Kentucky, and now they head into that matchup with Georgia being a, a number 11 team in the country. Georgia now with the, the number one ranking, but they still got some, some matchups, obviously one with Florida and some other games that are going to be a test for them. But look, the way that they played against Auburn and, and pulled away late, that just kind of shows you their dominance, especially defensively. And they clearly right now are the favorite in the league. And, and I think for a lot of folks looking at them nationally, but still got to come to Jacksonville, Graham. Yeah, they do. You know, I look at that coaching staff and without saying this is a knock on Florida, you look at the coaching staff there in Athens, a lot of head coaching experience there with Kirby Smart, Matt Luke, Will Muschamp. I mean, just what they have on the sideline is I, I think it's going to limit the mistakes. And now that they're in the driver's seat, that's just kind of a scary thought for the other SEC Eastern opponents that thought that they had an opportunity here. And while Florida still certainly does, it just makes it, I think, a little bit scarier because previously you could absolutely turn to Kirby Smart's lack of experience in big games. And now that they have other guys around him who have been there, done that, I think it's it's kind of just maybe the narrative is going to be a little bit different as the season progresses. Yeah, and I think the narrative is now different with Alabama because everybody was looking at them as the juggernaut. Nobody expected that loss to to Texas A&M. So now I think, if anything, if you're Florida, as much as it's cool to see the tide go down, that doesn't help Florida's standing or, or, or that loss look any better for the Gator standpoint. So Alabama, obviously, they kind of need them to keep winning. And I think if you're a Florida fan right now, you probably need to be rooting for the Vols to kind of go on a hot streak here and be able to knock off a team like Kentucky potentially or maybe even at home against Georgia and pull off an upset. But you're going to need some teams to lose if you're Florida to even have a shot still in the East. But look at that game in College Station and what the Aggies were able to do. That just goes to show you that anything is still possible and we still got a long way to go before any of these divisions are decided. But I think for Florida referencing Georgia knowing that they beat Vandy 62 to nothing in Nashville like I think the kind of pressure was on Florida to have a similar type performance and they get a similar type result but did not dominate the doors like the dogs did no they didn't and we're going to get into some of those mistakes and miscues here in the second segment but looking back at Tennessee I had said coming after that game that this could be a defining moment for that team and look at how Hendon Hooker has performed since the Florida game. They hang 63 on Missouri and then absolutely smacked South Carolina this weekend. He has looked fantastic, has been able to do it in the passing game. He had rushing touchdown this weekend. That's a guy who certainly is capable of shocking the world. We had said that maybe they didn't know what they had in Hooker. The Milton injury now kind of looks like a blessing in disguise. Obviously, you never root for someone to go down, but he has kind of given them, I think, new hope in terms of possibly being this dark horse in the SEC East if Florida isn't able to pull it out. And if they aren't, I think it will come down to a lot of these mistakes and miscues that we saw on Saturday, despite Florida you know, pitching a shutout here, because that, that Georgia-Vanderbilt game, it didn't look like Vanderbilt was really close to scoring. And the Commodores had chances throughout the afternoon. And a lot of them were because Florida 
went out there and created self-inflicted wounds. Now you're also, if you're a Florida fan, going to need Tennessee to lose at some point because they are ahead of Florida in the SEC East standings right now. So maybe Alabama can get it done like they do every single year against the Vols. But still a lot that we're going to watch play out in the SEC. But when we come back from this first break, Graham and I will give our takeaways from Florida Vanderbilt and start to break down this game and how the Gators were able to manage to get a shutout on Saturday. This is Gainesville Sun Sports Editor Arnold Feliciano. Please support our coverage of University of Florida Athletics by subscribing to the Gainesville Sun or Gatorsports.com. It's easy. Just go to www.gainesville.com slash subscribe now. Thank you for your support. I'm Blake Topmeyer, and this is SEC Football Unfiltered, a new podcast from the USA Today Network. Each week, we'll discuss the hottest topics that matter to the passionate fan bases of the SEC. I've covered the SEC for eight years. As for my co-host, longtime sports columnist John Adams, let's just say he's got a few decades on me. Not as many decades as some people think. Contrary to popular opinion, I did not cover General Neyland, but I did interview Bear Bryant, and I interviewed Nick Saban, and I covered Archie Manning and Peyton Manning. More insightful interview, John. Bear Bryant, Archie Manning, Steve Spurrier, or Johnny Majors? Gotta go with Steve Spurrier there. He's the great quipster. SEC Football Unfiltered debuts this summer. Let John and I be your tour guides from the season opener through the national championship. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. back into the Gator Sports Pod. Zach and Graham here. And Graham, obviously it was a beautiful day in the swamp on Saturday and kind of a picture-perfect start for Florida in the first quarter. They got some stops defensively. Emory Jones was able to lead the offense down the field for some touchdowns. And then Anthony Richardson checked into the game and the game kind of turned because he was not able to have the success that we saw him have in his previous game in the swamp this season. And Throwing that interception gave Vanderbilt some life. And then on his next drive that he went out there, the Gators went three and out. And that kind of allowed the Commodores to at least hang around and Florida to lose some momentum. And it wasn't until, Graham, the end of the first half and that incredible 51-yard catch by Naquan Wright that the Gators kind of got themselves going and took that into halftime. Dan Mullen had said earlier in the week that Florida had too many questionable players to mention, so he wasn't going to get into it. And when we got out there... You saw that Florida wasn't just missing Malik Davis in the backfield, but they were missing starting left tackle Richard Garage, which you and I kind of looked at each other up there, and I was like, that could be a huge thing. Although I thought Michael Tarquin played really, really well. Florida didn't allow a sack. It did just kind of look like Florida was a little bit off in the beginning. They didn't really have, I, I think, that execution that you're looking for, even though, you know, to their credit, a lot of even though we didn't think they would have many mistakes on the offensive line, there were no real issues on Saturday. They really didn't have a spark on offense until Naquan Wright was in there. Yeah. I, I mean, he was fantastic on two of their three touchdowns in the first half there. Really gave them a whole look in, in the passing game, whole different look in the passing game and in the running game. Um, and that's got a guy who had like third string running back next to his name, even though that's kind of something a title that would make you cringe normally yeah, think that's that not a proper label for him yeah and and to have him i, I think kind of you know i don't want to use the term chip on your shoulder but he had an opportunity to prove people that he was in running back entirely capable of performing in the sec and he did that on saturday against a program that let's note the commodores know what 
capable running backs look like. They have had some tremendous ones come through that program recently. Ralph Webb and what we saw with LaMichael Pirine a few years ago, Florida has relied on big plays from running backs to beat the Commodores, and, and that was the case on Saturday. Yeah, and obviously you've also relied on quarterback play here recently, and for the first time from Emory Jones, we really saw him find some success in terms of throwing touchdown passes for on Saturday. He also set a career high with 274 passing yards and clearly looked like QB1 in comparison to Anthony Richardson, and you saw the separation between those two, and I think maybe it's taken SEC competition for that to be obvious to everyone but but clearly Dan Mullen knew what he was doing in his plan for both of these guys but I think it's still obviously important for Anthony Richardson to keep being involved to keep getting this experience and having these growing pains because there is going to be plays and series when he gets in there and does something incredible and, and gives the Gators an explosive play and I mean hey even in Lexington he had that big run right on his first snap so I think he's capable but still not where Emory Jones is at. And I think Jones is continuing to progress from week to week to be able to kind of find different receivers in the passing game. That's something that I think is is one of the most impressive aspects of his game. He's not really reliant on one guy. He's really spreading the ball around. And I think that even when he does have a mistake or anything like that, he's he seems like he's able to to kind of shrug it off and did have the one interception late in the third quarter. Dan Mullen sent him back out there for one more series, and the Gators went three and out, but he threw a perfect pass to Henderson that was just dropped for a first down. I, I thought that he played really sharp. I, I thought he made a bad read on that interception, kind of threw in a double coverage, and it ended up being a tip pass. But other than that, I mean, he could have kind of called it a day on the series before when the Gators went up 42 nothing. Dan Mullen decided to give him that experience. But still, I mean, he's clearly the guy right now that the Gators are going with that quarterback. Yeah, Dan Mullen is looking maybe the term is prophetic or just in the know when he said that Emory Jones was a more capable quarterback right now of running Florida's offense. That is looking extremely correct right now. Even though he's far from perfect when it comes to making his reads and delivering the ball on time, I think a lot of it is still just his lack of experience as the starting quarterback. That is going to come with time. But right now, his knowledge the mental aspect of the game is far and away. And this isn't a knock on Anthony Richardson, but he's just had two plus more years in a program. So you are seeing him just be more capable of making those reads. And even though we did see a lot of mistakes, I I do think that it gives a lot of credence to the argument that Anthony Richardson really may not be ready to go out there and have a, a huge amount of success week in and week out against SEC defenses. And that's a narrative that I didn't just see from fans, Zach. I, I listened to that coming out of the USF game because there was a whole lot of praise for Anthony Richardson. People saying, this guy, Tim Tebow, Cam Newton, right now, play him, play him, play him. You and I talked about it a whole lot. But I was on a show right after that game with Shane Matthews, and he said, pump the brakes. You still need to see how he performs against SEC defenses, and that's looking extremely intelligent coming from a Florida former Florida quarterback who would know what the increase in caliber of talent is going to be like for an underclassman like Richardson. So I think you're seeing that come to life right now. And that's not to say you aren't going to eventually see this guy go out there and wow you and carve up defenses. Yeah, I mean, he could go off in Baton Rouge. I still think he can, but we've heard players in all three aspects of the game say that mistakes 
are going to absolutely mold you and help you improve. There's nothing like game experience. And as soon as Florida can help Anthony Richardson get those mistakes out of the way in games, he's going to be a better quarterback. If he's already able to go out there and have the dynamic plays, I think a lot of fans are clamoring for him to play more because they want him to make those mistakes. They want him to go out there in the third, fourth quarter of a game, even late in the first quarter, and maybe throw an interception. Uh, if it's going to help him improve, put something on film so he can see what he did wrong the following Sunday, Monday, and then go implement that in practice and then go out there the next week and improve on it, he is going to become a better quarterback capable of being those type of quarterbacks that you hear guys talking about him extremely early, him being. It's hard not to be excited about his potential, but that does not mean he's able to get there right now. But you still have to have him take those baby steps, and I think he took some against Vanderbilt despite the interception. And speaking of baby steps, he took some great steps on a third and two conversion that he had, but the play was negated because of an illegal formation, and that was... One of a few penalties that we saw from Florida on Saturday, obviously that was something that everybody had their eye on going into that game because of 15 for 115 yards in Lexington, the program's most penalties in a game since 2001. The Gators basically cut that in half and finished with eight penalties for 80 yards. Now in Lexington, they had eight false starts, eight, just one on Saturday, in the swamp so we knew that that probably wasn't going to be there as an issue and it wasn't three holding calls though on Florida's offensive line so that is something that still needs to get cleaned up and I mentioned the uh, illegal procedure penalty and I mean on defense you did have I think one uh, penalty on Avery Hellman coverage but then two personal foul penalties I I thought the one on Mahmoud Diabate was a bad call uh, I thought he was running after the ball. He hit the guy while he was still close enough inbounds that I didn't think that, that that needed to be a 15-yard flag. But overall, it wasn't a clean game from the Gators by any means. Eight penalties is still a lot for a Dan Mullen team. I went back and looked. The most that they had in 2020 in a game was eight, and they had that three times. And then the most that they had in a game in 2019 was nine. So, But they really haven't been hit with double-digit penalties and you know, didn't have double-digit penalties in 2019 or 2020. So it goes to show you that what happened in Lexington was out of the ordinary. Yeah, I wrote about penalties also after that Kentucky game, and really it was a problem, and I think you can link it to a lack of discipline, especially early in Dan Mullen's tenure. His first two games in Mississippi State, double-digit penalties against uh, one, an FCS opponent, in Jackson State. So certainly something capable of improving with more time as time goes on. But you look here now at the midpoint of the season, I could certainly understand Dan Mullen's frustration. And, you know, Zach, sometimes things kind of get, I, I guess, messed up on social media and it gets mistaken that the media can create the narrative that there's unhappiness following a 42 to zero shutout. But Dan Mullen, after the game, was asked, is the team getting better week to week? And I guess you could categorize his answer as chippy. Maybe he was annoyed, but I'm just going to read you his full answer. He said, some things, some things we have to accelerate that with. Again, way too many penalties today. If you look at that, watch what other teams, we've played Kentucky and Vanderbilt, really haven't had any penalties called on them. So they must be coaching it a little differently. If you check with their coaches and how they're coaching things and see, 
There's a massive differential the last two weeks in penalty calls. I think 23-5. to So maybe they're doing something a little different than what we're doing. I'm going to have to look into that. That's going to be about me to make sure discipline and we're not getting penalties called on us and we're playing at a higher level. So you're going into Death Valley this week. And then in three weeks, Florida, Georgia, which could decide your postseason fate. If the penalties are still there this weekend, heading into the bye week, it's going to be extremely concerning for this team. And you're going to see, I think, fans, media, coaches come out there and show a lot of concern. No doubt, Graham. When we come back from this final break, we will hand out some helmet stickers and put a bow on this 42 to nothing win over the Commodores and also talk about how the Gators were able to preserve that shutout also with some help from Vandy. We'll be right back after this break. USA Today's Florida Sports Network covers the Sunshine State better than anyone else. We have reporters and columnists covering Florida, Florida State, and Miami, the Dolphins, Jaguars, and Bucks. Like NASCAR, we've got you covered. We also provide the most comprehensive high school coverage available, and so much more. In fact, we have 17 news sites that encompass the state. Hi, I'm Tim Walters, host of the State of Florida Sports Podcast. Each week, this podcast utilizes our Florida Sports Network of beat writers, columnists, and some special guests to bring you up to speed on the most important sports topics. From Pensacola to Jacksonville, to Palm Beach to Naples, and all points in between, we've got you covered. The State of Florida Sports Podcast can be found wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as on any of our state news sites. Pod, Zach and Graham here, and it's time for us to hand out some helmet stickers as we do after each and every win. So the Gators do need to get that done first for us to do this, and uh, they obviously were able to get that done. They were able to cover the spread as well, so Vegas, good job on uh, that 30-point underdog that you made, Vandy. I, I was made. pessimistic about it, so yeah. they know more than me. They do. I mean, they uh, there's a reason why they keep doing that every <laughs> yeah. week. You don't bet um, against Vegas. But obviously there's a reason why Emory Jones keeps starting every single week, and I think that we saw that once again on Saturday. He gets my helmet sticker for just, again, showing that he could go out there and continue to improve, continue to progress. His second game in the Swamp where he eclipses 300 total yards and then his first career game with four touchdowns. And I think most importantly was that two of those came in the red zone. And the Gators were four for four in the red zone on Saturday, all touchdowns. They've not been a great red zone offense so far this season. And obviously that was an issue in the fourth quarter in Lexington. They had to settle for a field goal and then they get right back down the red zone and they can't punch it in to try and force the game to overtime. So that was something that I was looking for is how the Gators would fare there. And I think maybe even Naquan Wright, you know, going out at the half yard line and some of those other plays that they didn't convert on was good for the offense to get those opportunities. Vandy didn't do a lot of things well defensively. They're ranked in like the hundreds and like everything. 
one thing that they had done well coming into that game was red zone defense. They ranked 61st nationally, and they were only giving up touchdowns 56% of the time. So for Florida to go out there and get four trips in the red zone and score touchdowns all four times, Emory Jones, that was the type of performance that he needed to deliver. And uh, now he's got, I think, his confidence continuing to build as he goes into Baton Rouge. Got to give a shout out to Trent Whittemore for his grab there in the end zone. Uh, fantastic. And that was a dime from Emory, too. Absolutely. I mean, you have to give credit where it's due. We have, at times, said, hey, listen, that throw by Emory Jones looked looked slow, looked off. That was beautiful. And let me add one more thing, too. We all talked last week about the lack of deep balls down the field. We saw them on Saturday from Emory Jones yeah. and, and got a ball to Jacob Copeland. It was the Jacob Copeland drive, that deep ball. And then the next play, uh, Jacob takes it inside from right outside uh, the red zone. So really efficient in the passing game on Saturday outside of the one interception. Yeah, Dan Mullen said that the defensive coverage dictates how many shots downfield Florida can take. And he said certainly early on, Vanderbilt was given the Gators those opportunities, and they took them. And was Emory Jones connecting on a high rate? No. But it is a promising sign that this team is capable of drawing up, and it'll increase his confidence over time, running that play. And it was good practice for him to do that, in my mind. And Florida also, I think, got good practice in running between the tackles against this defense. You noted that it is in the hundreds, so it's not like they're coming out there against what Kentucky's top 10 nationally ranked defense. But Florida did, I think, a really good job running between the tackles. They did it on the one-yard line with Damian Pierce when he punched that in there for the first touchdown. And then you saw Naquan Wright. I mean, that juke. I mean, he cut back and then got into the second level and just absolutely made a guy miss. Disgusting. And that came with Florida running between the tackles. So if they can continue to improve upon that, that's a very promising sign for this offense. So I'm absolutely going to give my helmet sticker, like I kind of alluded to in the first segment, to Naquan Wright for setting up two of those first three touchdowns for this Florida offense. That was huge. He was a critical component. You know, I know he kind of shrugged off the notion in the postgame press conference that he got more opportunities because Malik went down. But, but that's what Dan Mullen said. That is what he said. And, you know, I don't want to refute the young man, but 20 minutes earlier, you got your head coach saying, hey, he had more opportunities and he stepped up. So sometimes you do kind of want to see a player own that, but you never want to also see a teammate kind of look positively on another guy going down, especially a guy like Malik Davis, who has weathered so many injuries over his Florida career. I could see why Naquan didn't want to come out there and say, hey, I show what I could do because a teammate went down. We've seen this team at times take a united approach, say that they're a running back committee, and Naquan just showed what he could do with more touches. It wasn't like he got another guy's opportunity, and, and he kind of wanted to clarify that post game. So I gave him some respect for that. Absolutely. And obviously, I give a lot of respect to Trey Dean on the defensive side for the way that he's kind of stepped up as a leader and has had to. He's had no choice now because you look at where the Gators are from an injury standpoint. You already had Jaden Hill out to start the season. You had Kamar Wilcoxon also go out with the season-ending injury. And then Kyir Elam comes into the season, plays really well, lives up to that preseason All-American billing, and then gets hurt and has now missed three consecutive games. And with him being out, the only veteran really that you have out there in the secondary is Trey Dean outside of Jadarius Perkins and Elijah Blades the two transfers and Blades now is reportedly no longer with the team so it was really on Dean to step up Saturday with Elam out 
And then with Travez Johnson getting ejected for targeting. I mean, it, it, so much was on him to make sure that Jadarius Perkins, when he got in the game, was lining up right. And just the responsibilities that he had leading that group. You got two freshmen out there starting at corner. So he's got so much on his plate from that standpoint on top of his play and performance. He's not perfect all the time, but man, he had one hell of a third quarter and he came up with that incredible interception. He had two pass breakups in the game, I think finished with seven tackles, but he gets my helmet sticker. He's really coming along at that safety position and the Gators really need elite play from their safeties given where the rest of their secondary is at. Yeah, we've seen a lot of guys get into the second level and miscues by the corners that the safeties have had to either chase a guy down or, or make that tackle in the second level. And you certainly saw that on Saturday, and it wasn't just Trey Dean doing it, but man, Rashad Torrance, he's getting my helmet sticker. I haven't seen a guy have 15 tackles in a game in a minute. We saw Diabate have, what, 12? Yeah, I think since David Reese prize the last Oof, Florida player. Man, and it's not too often that a safety is the one doing it. That just shows his acceleration, his speed. He was flying. His ability ball. to pick up the play. Uh, yeah, he was crossing the field. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, getting in uh, to the backfield and making tackles. He was making them all over the field, so he gets mine. I know that it can be kind of concerning when you see a safety being your leading tackler because it means that guys are getting past the front seven, especially Vanderbilt. So I know that that's not certainly a total positive, but you have to praise him for being able to make the tackles and not letting those result in points on the scoreboard. And you just look at the secondary as a whole, and again, credit to Torrance and Dean for really leading that unit, but this is a secondary that last year, and a lot of these guys weren't starting, but last year the Gators gave up 319 passing yards to Ken Seals, who was a true freshman. So to be able to hold him on Saturday to under 200 yards passing, pick him off twice, sack him three times, that is an improvement from the year before, and you did it with two freshman corners and your starting star getting tossed out of the game in the first quarter, and then you had your two safeties basically play out of their mind, and especially Trey Dean in that third quarter. So props to both of those guys, and I think that was certainly what Florida is going to need moving forward, and the tests are only going to get tougher these next two weeks. I know LSU's loss last few games recently, but this is still a team that can stretch the ball down the field, and Florida's going to have to get prepared for that in Death Valley. When we join you guys later in the week, Graham and I will be here back in the Gainesville Sun Studios to preview that matchup, some things to watch for, and our X-Factors for Saturday's noon kickoff in Baton Rouge. For Graham Hall, I'm Zach Albaverde.